Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Hey, this is Jamie with the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Today, my guest uh, is one of the longest running uh, friendships I've had in the space. Uh, Don Batsford has been doing this for almost 22 years now, uh, and he's on our uh, he's on our podcast today. So before we dive right into that, I want to tell you about a case study that we put together uh, that was focusing on customer acquisition costs and, and controlling those costs. So we put together this case study that highlights uh, the commission structure, technology utilization, and some different promotional strategies that we use for our clients and their affiliate programs to help them increase their overall revenue while reducing the cost of acquisition. So that's something that can be done. We're doing it for our clients right now. And that case study is now available to you at jbcommerce.com slash acquisition costs. So go get that strategy. Now, today we have Don Batsford uh, Jr. on with us. He is currently the head of industry at Google. And we talk about some pretty awesome stuff. I actually took, uh, I think, eight pages of notes. Uh, and one of the things we want you to really look out for is the three universal truths, how it relates to digital marketing and what we're doing digitally. And then at the end, he ties that in with action items for uh, digital marketers uh, in each of those areas. So definitely look out for that. It's a great conversation. Don is probably one of the smartest people that I've had the blessing to get to know uh, and spend time with over my 20 years uh, in this space and 16 years with uh, JEB Commerce. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Don Batsford. All right, Don Batsford Jr., thank you for joining me today on the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Excited to chat with you. How are you, my friend? Jamie, I'm doing well. Uh, I hope that you and your family are safe. Yeah, we are. It's uh, definitely a unique time, right? When I started recording this podcast, we were, gosh, that was about, well, it was about 20 weeks ago. Uh, and things were a little different. Things were kind of looking, hopefully calming down in the the area of COVID. But now uh, we're entering into some say a third wave, some pretty crazy stuff. So where are you located? How have you guys been dealing with this? Yeah, I'm, I'm just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Um, my wife and four kids and I live in the historic town of Concord, Massachusetts. Uh, the Old North Bridge, which was the start of the American Revolution, is just down the street. So uh, oh, that's it was awesome. This was a very busy place in 1775 in April, <laughs> uh, cold morning. Uh, that being said, um, it's a little bit more quiet now, sleepy, as we are all just hunkered down and um, in for the duration, as they say. Yeah. And that, how have the kids adjusted? How old are your kids? I have four as well from 12 to 24. 
Yeah, I, uh, we overlap a bit. Uh, the youngest is six, and then it goes up to 15. So uh, as you know, four kids is an opportunity for you to experience <laughs> multiple life stages at the same time, which is exciting. And uh, I'm grateful that these past few months that the family and I have gotten a chance to spend more time together and that you and I, I think, are most grateful for the fact that our jobs are flexible from a geographic standpoint and trying to lean into that and be appreciative of the opportunity to spend that quality time. I thought you were going to say an opportunity to develop, to develop patience, <laughs> a father of four. Uh, but yeah, the definite, the different life stages are, are unique. And we have two set, two kind of sets of kids two really who are in their twenties and, and two uh, either teenagers are entering their teens. So that, that's definitely, uh, something, um, you know, we've, we've developed a couple new kind of traditions and, uh, things that we're, we're doing here. Did you, do you guys find yourself falling into some new, uh, habits that you, you think you'll hope to carry over when things get, I hate to say normal, but, yeah. or back or, uh, I don't know, you know what I mean? <laughs> Without a doubt, uh, several different habits. Honestly, we leaned into many different board games. Uh, we always loved the Eurocentric board games, so Settlers of Catan and the like. We've mm -hmm. broken those out a few extra times in the past couple months. In addition to that, we have a fun game that we started in March. We call it Surprise Meeting. Everybody in the family makes a deck, uh, a PowerPoint or a Google Slide deck, and then randomly hands it off to somebody else where you have to pitch it. Goofy pictures, hilarious slides, many giggles. It's probably the most business-centric game ever, but a picture of a banana with the caption underneath it, our founder, uh, is hilarious for a nine-year-old, and it's hilarious for somebody who's a few years older, including myself. So, that, And is that something you, you created on your own? I've never heard of that. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. Google Slides or PowerPoint is typically something that is kicking around on a laptop. If you have a, a Chromecast or some kind of way of getting the slides up into the room, it was free and a quick search using a search engine to find some funny pictures and everybody gets a laugh. I, it's just something that we started doing. I'm sure that it's happening in other circles. I just don't know where it came through uh, the ether into our house, but as soon as we locked down, we said, we've got a lot of weekends ahead of us. Let's start doing fun and goofy things. An additional thing we're doing that is during this holiday season, we're going to have one night outside of a traditional holiday um, that we're going to be giving books. All We heard that there is a Christmas Eve tradition in Iceland giving books. So the six of us are going to give the other five family members each a book. Uh, and then we're going to spend the rest of the night reading and eating chocolate. So this is the start of a new family tradition, very book centric. And honestly, the kids are very excited about it. It's probably going to be the highlight of the, the whole holiday season. Uh, they're over the moon getting a chance to pick out. I think in collectively, we have probably 30 books that are going to be open that night, um, at least if not more. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, now the, the, I love the book idea. Um, we've been doing something last couple of years to get away from sort of the commercialism of the holiday to, to really, uh, uh, five categories of gifts. So instead of going crazy, 
Um, and now as I'm saying that, I'm realizing we have completely got off the mark this year in that uh, 100%, but we usually, something to read, something to wear, that that kind of thing. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so I, I love the book idea. That's something very important to us too. Um, on the, the game, did you do that on purpose to, to bring uh, entrepreneurialism or a presentation was it also an educational opportunity or is it just it seemed like something fun and that's that's what it is yeah it's something i grew up playing board games and they were typically pretty long and took several hours um in the early aughts i was in san francisco i had a startup at the time and i i made my way to the san francisco bay area and i started spending one or two nights a week in mountain view california playing with a bunch of engineers what they referred to as german board games so think Yahoo, Google, the like, just all at a local board game mm-hmm. club. And they would bring games. These games were quick, half hour, uh, moments to learn, years to master style games. And uh, fell in love with it. Kept many of these you know, in the collection. And then as kids came along, started to realize two dice have a higher percentage of rolling a seven than a two. That's statistically very powerful for their brains to start making synapses towards also, um, understanding scarcity, management of resources, negotiating. It's wonderful. Resource management and um, wayfinding through even a, a glorified version of rock, paper, scissors is important. And I, I see so many benefits of board games for children from a social and a um, professional level. So very excited that we could introduce that into their lives. That's great. You know, we do something similar with Monopoly that drives uh, uh, my wife crazy. Well, we will show uh, negotiation and those games last (laughs) forever. Right. And uh, I will negotiate anything with the kids uh, on board, off board. Uh, My son was just now recently uh, after his birthday allowed to charge me any time going forward, I ended up on any of the railroads if he owned them. At one point, he wanted Pennsylvania Railroad. And I said, fine, I'll give it to you. But you can't charge me on any railroads until you turn 12. Oh, no. uh, he took it. And uh, I skated on railroads for about four years. Um, so I've always taken that uh, uh, opportunity to show like there's always a win-win. And, and more, you know, the finer points of negotiating, uh, while it completely drove my wife crazy as I'm working in car detailing and chore doing into uh, a game of Monopoly. But I'm glad to see I'm not the, not the only one. I think that's wonderful. A big fan of uh, the, the Monopoly negotiation skill set. I think it serves people well for the rest of their life. If you ever want just a quick moment of Monopoly and you don't want to play the full game, there is actually a card game version of it called Monopoly Deal, which is probably about 75% of the game, but it's pulled out the board and the movement. uh, There's something really interesting about that, but it, it, it pulls it down into a very manageable and digestible moment. Uh, if you ever just want to have something that's a little little spin on the the concept. I'll take it. Maybe that'll lead to less arguments in the Birch household. <laughs> uh, so I wrote that down. That's usually the game that gets us all fired up. Uh, but, you know, Don, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you have a, a long history in the industry. Um, for those who aren't familiar uh, with you, how did you how'd you get your start? You know, what was your first uh, your gig? You, you started... 
uh, early on in the internet space. So kind of walk me through and our listeners through your trajectory. Sure. So, you know, my career has been 21 years in digital marketing. It's actually uh, next year will be 22 years. So uh, as you and I have been in this space for a long time, things have changed. But my career can be summarized in two big pieces, half working for me, half working for other companies such as Google, where I currently work. I'm the head of industry at Google in the Boston area. And um, what I think is interesting is that over the two decades or more that I've been in digital, I've seen um, a lot of opportunities to leave. You know, there, I remember back in the dot-com days, B2B, B2B meant back to banking, where many people left. But I've made the yeah. conscious decision yeah. to stay in online advertising and it shift from a strategy um, that people could choose from to actually it's now the strategy where people say, okay, this is the one we have to nail. You know, there used to be many different thoughts. So I started my career uh, at a company call, uh, called CMGI. And I, I find it kind of interesting because it, when I describe what that company was, it sounds very similar to Alphabet. It was a multi-brand internet company, umbrella company, that owned a piece of a search engine, a hosting company, a uh, targeting and delivery of ads. There was dabbling in uh, augmented reality and the like. And wow. uh, it was essentially Alphabet in the, the 90s version of it. It was the steampunk version of Google. <laughs> and CMGI was headed by a very smart person by the name of David Weatherall, who had the, I think, very keen insight that the internet was going to be a big deal. Well, I joined that and uh, learned that there were some universal truths, such as things that privacy is important. Um, you can take people's intent that they're demonstrating on the internet and put that into effective advertising. And also you can move forward through a career and, and, and be in a disruptor type of field, but uh, stay true to the, the empathy and the humanity that I think is really important uh, when we're thinking about the users are human beings. So um, I went from CMGI and I actually left that to start my own company in the whole, uh, dot com boom and that was to be in uh in in the space of of doing kind of a connecting large data sets normalizing them uh, for purposes of building websites and marketing and then i actually moved over to work in lead generation and affiliate i uh, ended up being at uh, commission junction or at cj as they may uh, go by now mm -hmm. And after CJ, I was actually uh, uh, started up a agency doing search and we were pretty flexible about the way we got paid. We took clients, we took affiliate deals and we took, uh, you know, combinations of the, of the, of the like, and that company was called. And I think that's where we met. Yes. And that was 31 media. And uh, mm -hmm. that was from the um, mid aughts to uh, I was doing my own kind of agency work up until right till I went to Google. What's wonderful is that the work that you and I do, understanding multiple clients' business objectives, uh, breaking those down into actions, driving teams forward to the, to the goal of growth and profitability, those are all 
bedrock conversations I have every day at Google. I feel like the affiliate industry, the lead generation industry, the uh, the tech conversations I was all involved with, every one of those I leverage um, every day. Heck, even my grad school classes of, of SQL and JavaScript, I, I, I use everything in my career um, as a culmination. And uh, it's, it's, it's something where I feel really lucky that all of those skills can come to bear every day in, in what is perceived to be as a constantly shifting landscape. And how was the decision made? Because you've been uh, you've been a founder, co-founder, you've been an employee. Are uh, you know, like you said, half half of your career has been working for yourself, half for for others. Uh, how did you make those decisions? You know, why did you go start your own? Why did you come back? Kind of walk me through how that worked. Yeah. So first, I'd just like to say I think Google is a very special place to work. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. It has a company culture. It has its outsized impact and ability to drive results. Um, my current job at Google is not completely separate from the realities of who who it is as a company. So making a decision to go work for Google is largely influenced by the company that um, was and is now under Sundar. Um, it, it's, it's a special place to work. I'd also like to say that uh, given the fact that I've gone, worked for somebody, then me, then somebody, then me, then somebody, is largely due to the fact that I am in a, uh, not emotionally connected to, my value doesn't come from um, whether I'm ultimately the, the, the boss or the, deci- the final decision maker. I am very flexible emotionally, whether I'm working for somebody else, part of a team, I'm, I have... Um, higher up because I have, I think, an understanding and I have, I've been very lucky to be able to have experiences to show me that working for yourself and working from other people, both, both have positives and challenges. There's an opportunity working for yourself without a doubt, but also working for a a company, working with somebody else and, and, and having the benefit of that larger team has its own advantages and moving back and forth can be very scary. I remember when, um, and I had my first job and we were, we were writing a business plan to leave. It was very exciting to think about hanging our shingle. And then when we yeah. did it, it was very nerve wracking to think about going back and getting a job. But when you make those moves back and forth and you start to understand ultimately that your value proposition to the greater market is, is on what relationships you can build, what results you can drive. The, the kind of greater ecosystem of it is not as important as, as you would think. It, it, it almost becomes you doing a good job and focusing at the task at hand and being present and mindful of that is really, really the thing that comes into focus. I've never been a good athlete, but I've heard, I've heard people speak about what it's like to be a good athlete and talking about getting that tunnel vision. Yeah. And I feel like I have at least the uh, the kind of mental understanding of what it might feel like for them because they're like, okay, I can focus on just this needs to happen. Uh, and, and I feel similar um, focus maybe in my, my current task at hand. Now, that awareness of one's value, that 
uh, can be hard uh, to come by. Were you always aware of what you wanted out of your professional life? Uh, or is that something you developed, you know, you, you, you discovered by working for yourself, working for someone else, working for yourself, was that a, uh, discovery process or did, did you inherently know that? Yeah. You know, my favorite book is the book outliers. And I've said that many times publicly, I think we all stand on the shoulder of giants. My day to day, or even anything I do is not completely divorced from the effort of many, many people including my parents, my grandparents, people I've never met, technologists and and co-founders and, and the like. I stand on the shoulder of partners I've done companies with and the, 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 the company and the teammates I've had. One of the things that I just admit is that I am along for the ride. There's many of the technological advancements. We have the benefit of being there at the right moment. Um, and so I, I think, honestly, I don't want to say that it could be anybody in any position at any time, but it's not far from that. Most people in most time periods and most gigs could, given the right opportunity, be successful. And that that's a bit of humility that I, I hope that I bring to a situation. And I think that most people should um, at least consider that the, the role you have was built on, on, on thousands of people working very hard to make it um, a, an opportunity. So um, I, I don't ever try to lose sight of that. And to pay it forward with my four kids, I think about what will will they benefit from it, but also how will their kids and, and their grandkids hopefully have something, even if it's just a fractional piece of it, have something that they can say is uh beneficial that comes from kind of their time with me or, or things that I've done in the past. Really interesting kind of uh, debunking the myth of the self-made man for sure. Right. Uh, I, mean, I look at go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say just, uh, here's an example. For example, when I was a kid in the 1980s, um, you know, I'm, I'm 44. So I'm uh, of a certain age <laughs> and being yep. born in the 1900s, as I tell my children, it's, it's 1900s. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anytime I want to explain why something was weird when I was a child, I said, well, of course, I was born in the 1900s. And they can just nod unironically and say, oh, yes. I love that. <laughs> the 1900s. <laughs> we had lit a gasoline when I was born. Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, but 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 it's okay because the dinosaurs were still around. The dinosaurs we were burning were, were still uh, down the block. <laughs> that, <laughs> that being said, uh, when, when in the 1980s, my father used to go to work in a building where he could eat lunch in the same cafeteria as the gentleman who put the at symbols in email. And I'm not exaggerating. The human being who put the at symbols in email addresses ate lunch in the same room. And when you think about what you see as bedrock, the curbs and the street lights. And the, the driveways, uh, even the infrastructure of the internet, is so recent, um, and 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 uh, and that's that's so that's my father. And my father-in-law would literally talk about the streets in Michigan. He was a town manager where they would actually lay the sidewalks and put up the buildings for uh, the government buildings and the streetlights. And he would talk about managing the physical infrastructure. And I think from the digital or to the physical world, knowing that 
much of what you and I might take for granted <laughs> was just literally having the paint dry on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Is that it, it, I think it, I think it brings it into sharp focus that we are in a very um, young country. You know, I mentioned that the, the bridge is down the street. We're in a very young industry, um, and and much of what we've done is is because of the hustle of a, of a lot of very smart women and men before us. That is that is awesome and so your that ability to uh find your value with working for others and working for that that comes from that humility that you know this is what i can do uh uh there's a whole lot else going on around me that's allowing me to be successful i can be successful here i can be successful for myself exactly exactly and i also think that very large companies and very small companies uh, can actually flip the script if you think about them correctly. A very large company has many resources and provides huge opportunities to be entrepreneurial quite often. And very small companies quite often have the ability to go and be the juggernaut in a space because they have an expertise that nobody else would have because you can be so focused and be so responsive. And it's funny because the value proposition of each, we think, oh, a small shop can pivot and can be so, so different and, and innovative. And a big shop's going to just be this established player with years of experience. And given the right perspective, the opposite can be true on any given day. So it's, it's almost uh, <laughs> with your amount of courage you have, your kind of worldview can, the shape of it can be changed. Yeah, definitely. And one of the a company that I advise, uh, they are have an opportunity to be acquired, and they're kind of going through this very discussion of, you know, on our own we have a lot of flexibility and we can move and pivot quickly, but part of something greater, we can accomplish our mission uh, ten years ahead of schedule, uh, and be part mm-hmm. of something larger, utilize resources that they don't have access to. Uh, and so they're struggling with that right now of being owning the thing or accomplishing the mission. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And then then it almost comes down to a discussion on leadership teams, you know, their role and what I think would be maybe the uh, the key parts of their fit in that organization. Yeah, definitely. Now, tell me what the head of industry at Google in the greater Boston area does. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. So head of industry is a, a term um, peers of mine that have that title run uh, teams, business development teams. We work with CMOs of the largest sets of, of clients and advertisers at Google. So we would be on the business side. You know, Google, think about it as two, two halves. There's the engineering side and then there's the business side, engineering, mm-hmm. building products, making them reliable features, uh, innovation in, in what exists and in, in how you and I can interact and shape with our technological reality. And then the business side is, is and how do, some of those products rely on ads and, and other companies to monetize them. So think about a search result page or, or a YouTube video is going to have clients that take advantage of what they know a person wants or needs and, and try to present them with a message that is most in line that for something they might be in market for. So if you're looking for a car, maybe there's an opportunity for a car manufacturer to put a, a pre-roll video before the video that you want to see on YouTube 
it keeps YouTube free and accessible, and it allows uh, a connection, hopefully, with a service that is beneficial, and the advertiser is has um, an opportunity to have a high impact placement. So those conversations are, happen with chief executives of every company you can imagine that does advertise. Mm-hmm. We have account managers, account executives, analytical leads, campaign managers that are on the team, and uh, and there's many of us across the country that um, that deal with that kind of those kind of conversations. So you've worked for you know many different industries now or uh, organizations now one of the largest uh, organizations. Talk to me about leadership, leading teams. Uh, what what have you learned about leadership and in, in all those different areas that you 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 really hold on to now? Yeah, so there's there's a few things I think that are really important, and there's a lot of actual study that's gone in at Google, and I think that's one of the wonderful things is that when you think about one of the resources they have is the ability to do studies. And there's a couple of internal studies that have happened at Google, uh, and both of them have been named Project Oxygen and Project Aristotle. And one of the things they were challenging is, is it the people on the team or is it how the team interacts that ultimately determines success? And one of the surprising findings of any of these studies was essentially any team can be successful. And I mentioned that earlier. I said (laughs) one of the things is that it it doesn't be anybody at any time. And and that's what this study ultimately said is that anybody at any time can be part of a successful team. One of the uh, the things was, is that I think early on, many tech companies said, we're going to hire the Ivy League valedictorians. We're going to get the perfect SAT score. Those resumes, those CVs, which were flawless and get them together, amazing people will do amazing things. Now, those people are smart and will do amazing things without a doubt, given the right team and team environment. And the determining factor of that was a psychologically safe environment with their team team members. Are you willing to let your teammates take risks, essentially without repercussion? Are they allowed to admit mistakes? Can they ask questions? Can they be confident that the team will support them if they, uh, they bring their whole self to work, right? Hmm, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then can they depend on the others around them to, to do the same, to be doing high quality work, to be pushing limits? And no matter who the other members of the team are, just, uh, just are they going to do it extremely well? Whatever it is they're working on. And, um, and, then, and then essentially, can you, make it, can you make that be the actual formal agreement that ever has? Is there clarity, is there structure around a psychologically safe, dependable team where people can drive meaning and they say, they're they saying to themselves, I have impact on this team. Um, that, that's, that's really important. Um, and, and I think uh, seeing those results come out of that, it's, it's the mental picture I have is a pile of bricks or a, a library built out of the bricks. Physically the same raw materials but functionally highly different. Having the bricks piled up just so you, so you can essentially have uh, meetings and, and reading club inside versus just a pile of bricks. And uh, they can be the best bricks, but <laughs> you putting them in, 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 a, in a safe and uh, 
secure pattern makes them be much more effective. And how does that, so I, and, and I, I don't know if I've read those reports, but I do remember the phrase, a psychological safe environment in practically, how does that look like for a leader of, of a team or, or of teams? What have, what have you seen? What have you done to practically make that exist? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I, that I, I mentioned here is, is there structure and clarity uh, first of all, you need to know what you own and what you're working towards, right? And and how you're going to get there. So that structure and clarity, I think a manager or a team leader has to do. Uh, so you know what you're supposed to be working on. So that is mm-hmm. that's we all have to have uh, that that Walt Disney moment where he says, "Let's build the castle first, right? No confusion. We're building Disney World here. The castle's going up. Everybody, everything yeah. else you do is got to be aligned to this castle. It's a beacon." But then when it comes down to that, um, are you allowing people essentially to take risks and admit mistakes, ask questions, and do it in something where they can be bold and curious and, and, and ultimately themselves? Um, that diversity of, of, of thought and person and approach is so critical. There's many uh, results that we're seeing from the stock market, from team effectiveness, from sales numbers, that we understand a more um, inclusive and diverse and psychologically safe team ultimately is going to be the thing that's best for the company. And we have uh, numbers to back it up and it's exciting. So from a manager standpoint, just to quickly review, structure, clarity, having a team that's dependable, but also allow people to make those mistakes, ask those questions, even if they think that it's a silly question, right? So that they're confident that they can um, to, to understand it without getting those negative reactions. You know, a guilt-free post-mortem to even a catastrophic failure so you can understand what it is going forward um, allows people to feel as they are developing personally, having impact. And uh, I mean, and, and you know, with some of the company that's big enough, you know, you can really have outsized impact uh, across the globe. Digital really breaks down a lot of those barriers. So the sky's the limit. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, outlining that. So I got structure, clarity, dependable team, allowing uh, mistakes to be made, allowing questions, even if uh, they're silly, allowing any questions. What I really liked was a guilt-free post-mortem. We we call them uh, retrospectives. Mm-hmm. We used to call them autopsies. <laughs> and it just it's not a real positive uh, feel, but... Uh, guilt-free. And, and that that's convicting. I have to go and, and look at how we do that to make sure that that uh, that we're doing that well. So I really, really appreciate that. Ah, it's great. It's great. And, and I think that those are universally true for the teams, uh, regardless of what they're working on. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And I think that, I, I think that that's one of the things that has been exciting um, moving forward is understanding that Regardless of how disruptive certain industries seem, that you know that's on the surface. That below it, there's a, a core set of universal truths that are are um, consistent. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, like you said earlier, you've been doing this now for almost 22 years. What uh, in this digital marketing space? What are the most impactful changes you've seen over that time, and and what's really stayed the same? Yeah, I, so. 
here's the thing. I, I think that digital is so exciting. Uh, you know, it's something where I can't overstate the opportunity. Also, the fact that all of the old cliches about, say, advertising have been thrown out the window, that half of advertising is wasted, uh, that you just don't know which half, the fact that creative people and, and suits don't have to get, you know, they don't get along. All of the old cliches are out the window. So I think that that has changed. Um, I do think there's three universal truths. I, I touched on them earlier, but I mentioned I don't see any shift away from uh, the fact that we need to respect individual user privacy. It's been true for the last 22 years, and I think it will be true for the next 22. Individual privacy and respecting their wishes for how their debt is used, consistent. And, and it's wonderful to see that that's still a truth. The second is going to be the growth in connectivity. If you think about when you and I were first in the space, high-speed internet was not a given. High-speed internet was a uh, luxury item. And now yeah. if you think about uh, several of my kids are, are on Zoom on any given moment of any day. Mm-hmm. It has brought into sharp focus that something like a broadband, broadband connection on your phone or on your laptop and the access to that has become increasingly um, a, a, the bare minimum connectivity that's expected. So that growth in connectivity is the, the devices, the speed, uh, you know, Moore's law uh, for the, with the capability of the devices is going up every, every year. So respecting user privacy, growth in connectivity. And the third and the last moment here, the last uh, consistent universal truth I wanted to bring up was that, that the increasing capability of machine learning. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Moore's Law. There's an interesting 120-year graph that in a Tim Ferriss book I saw a couple of days ago, and it talks about how the capability of essentially processing things has gone up to the up and to the right for the last 120 years. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's you know when you combine the ability to understand, process, and pull patterns out of huge data sets, and then you have this connectivity at a moment's notice, and you um, can almost see a future where there's there's really no problem that you can't throw pretty significant resources against. It's now just, uh, the analogy I would use is it's, we now have a fire truck with a hose on it. Now we just need to have somebody start to say, okay, tell us where the fire is. We'll come and we'll use the hose and we'll spray it on there. It's very focused and powerful. Now it's just, it's a big city. It's a big world. It's an infinite set of questions. Now we as humans, we as business leaders need to think about well, where's the fire? Where's the proverbial fire that we need to put these resources and point the hose at to uh, to fix them? I love the three universal truths. You know, when you talked about connectivity, I was thinking of, I think you said your uncle uh, is the, uh, works in the city and their infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking there's a, a large conversation going on right now is, is broadband connectivity and and will broadband providers be treated, be migrated to more of a utility uh, as opposed to where we are now where, you know, you get broadband if you're amongst a whole lot of other people who have broadband and it's cost effective to to provide that. Do you think uh, that is going to change in the future? Do you think it becomes more of a utility? 
Well, I, I think all three of these have uh, have almost a full novel on each one of them. But just the, the 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 quick hot take on growth and connectivity is: let's say you have about two hundred billion connected objects in the world right now. Two hundred billion. You start doing some math about how many human beings there are. Really quickly, you understand that the demand is 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 almost infinite for connectivity. Right. Mm-hmm. So any person is increasingly capable of, of interacting with, with um, the Internet or some kind of um, data transfer at any moment. So I would say if, if the, the invisible hand has anything to do with it, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, you know, there's no sign of that slowing. And I, I would say that we will see either through legislation or through free market enterprise. And honestly, it probably be both that the data sets uh, are not going to shrink. You know, they'll, <laughs> we've got, uh, you know, you think about just how many photos have you taken digitally in the last couple of years? Oh, I can tell you it's over hundred in the last day or so. <laughs> yeah. It's probably more than you and I had taken of us as children. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And all that had to get stuck up in a cloud somewhere and saved. Right. Uh, I don't know that I have a hundred photos of my childhood <laughs> and there's a hundred probably of the last couple of days that, that demand is going to be such that there's going to be uh, satellite based, whether it's geosynchronous or it's going to be multi kind of a swarm of them. It's going to be, uh, there's, uh, the Fios, the high speed, there's going to be also, um, increasingly handsets, you know, the 5g phone is a tether toggle away from powering your laptop's connection. And that puts an interesting set of questions on, is your Wi-Fi the thing that needs to always be connected to your laptop or is it your phone, if your phone can do it? And it's doing it at a 5G speed. And so 5G is a fragile waveform. So I'm not saying that that's something that maybe will happen tomorrow, but ultimately, I think we'd be silly to bet against its adoption. So, Don, when we first started re- uh, talking about doing this podcast, uh, you threw out a couple different topics you really wanted to, to dive into. One of them was how data and pattern recognition are shaping digital marketing. So there's a lot there. So why don't you tell us what that is and, and let's just dive into to how that really is shaping digital marketing. Sure. So think about as long as we're just being... Uh, really broad-minded here and thinking about what the world's going to look like moving forward. We have these large data sets. We have this increasingly connected world. But we also have something, there's a there's a silent revolution that maybe we're always not being made aware of, which is the fact that machines are now teaching themselves. And it's a fundamental invention in the technique. It's, it's equivalent to the wheel or the airplane. It's as if the Wright brothers took off and we're not talking about it. And what it is, is that essentially machine learning is that we don't explicitly have to code how the machine should approach a solution. We instead have to allow it to understand what not to do. So if you think about a two-year-old, when a two-year-old is walking around and they have something in their hand and they open up their hand and it falls to the ground and breaks, that's a novel occurrence. Now, it's not a novel occurrence for you and I. We 100% know that's going to happen. But the only way we know it was, it's happened, because it's happened hundreds, maybe thousands of times previously where we've dropped something. Similar with machines, they can get large data sets and just exactly like a two-year-old, 
start to make connections with if X happens, Y happens. And we don't explicitly need to show that. It can recognize these patterns. Why this is impressive is that because unlike a two-year-old, the machine doesn't need to sleep. And unlike a two-year-old, it's not going to require maybe an extra bottle and a nap. What it does require <laughs> is it's very hungry for these data sets. So think about uh, when you have this self-teaching with no human oversight, you can just point it. And I mentioned earlier fires. You can point it at a problem and say, fix this. So for example, one, one of the ways that a lot of uh, uh, people might think about this is computers started to beat humans in chess and then in increasingly complicated games like Go. Just last week, we had a, a, a breakthrough with protein folding. You and I are living in a world where a 50-year problem in science was solved via machine learning. Wow. To identify uh, other big problems like that is going to be something that is going to be really important for us to ask the right questions. But end-to-end um, -end open source machine learning platforms are available for everybody right now. So for example, there is, a, there is something that exists called TensorFlow, and, and it's free to everybody today. This is end-to-end -end open source machine learning that you can go make a model against. And uh, you can apply this to medicine, climate science, public health, and you can do that today. And it's pretty exciting uh, because <laughs> what were essentially 100-year problems, 50-year problems, it's now just a matter of people being bold and curious and going and, and tackling them and, and coming up with models. So we could see a future where there is intuition from models that allows us to discover things that we can't even uh, we can't even think would be possible right now. I am excited for the insights that will come out of it. As a marketer, of course I like it. You're in a life event and you know that these things are important and you can cross-sell and upsell and this is going to be beneficial to the person and you can understand conversion rates and landing pages and you can help optimize and, and make things efficient and save people time and energy. Love it. Everybody benefits from that. Shorter time on the phone, shorter form pages, higher conversion rates. Those are all wonderful. But for as a human being, looking forward and understanding that diseases are going to be solved, that infrastructure and uh, complicated patterns that we bring into our lives, whether it's cars or connectivity or uh, the way power grids work or the, the development of, of more efficient farming and, and water sanitation, all of those things have so many external factors that we might not be able to, as humans, process. If the data exists, machine learning is an opportunity for us increasingly to, to leverage those capabilities. Now, do you think on the marketing perspective, do you think that gets down to uh, a simplicity where a, a CMO or a marketing director is, is utilizing that? Or is, will it be continue to be you know, experts who really know how to do these things? Will it, it, it is, is it going to be that available? Or, or maybe it already is to where yeah. you know, anyone can use that. 
So machine learning is happening right now. Uh, for example, in marketing, I would say there are products at Google that every product that Google now uses machine learning. For example, uh, the way that ads are written, where you provide raw assets, it pulls the assets, understands unique combinations that go with certain markets and audiences, understanding how much to bid in which auction, given a whole bunch of signals that would be most relevant to the user. Think about this is that an ad, if it's not relevant to a user, is really a miss. And yeah. also, um, when you start to think about on the back end, understanding what uh, what kind of flow a person goes through in, in their conversion. I would say that anybody who uses automated bidding, automated ads, or has an understanding of, of say, uh, media that chooses where the placements should be, dynamically based on signals, is already participating in a machine learning future. You're there. You're, it's not, yeah. maybe it's end state, but you are stepping forward into that future. I think it poses an interesting question for the CMO, as in, who should I hire? And and I, and I do have a point of view on this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the... the the, the future is you should hire as many or more people, but you should think about what they should be working on. You know, CMOs, CEOs really need to think about how they're going to have their teams be purposed towards what the, what the reality is, is that, that you're asking a person to go through. So, um, I have this expression that I really love, which is let people be people and let computers do division, right? Yeah. So a human being shouldn't be a, an adding machine. They shouldn't be doing division. They shouldn't, but they should be asking, okay, what is needed in the people we're servicing right now? What do they need? Where are the gaps with service, with offering, with experiences? Can we create to shape the future um, rather than cutting thinner slices? How can we bake a bigger pie? That bigger pie question ends up becoming a human being does that. Because I'll tell you one data set that no machine really is good at getting is the walking around being a person. We can do a lot of things yeah. with machines, but having them walk around and being a person uh, is not something that <laughs> machines are good at yet. Yeah. My yeah. favorite example is this is uh, three years ago, I used to work in Mountain View for just one, um, one quarter and I worked there. And I did a rotation there just to work with CMOs for a quarter and ask big questions. It was a very Google type of job where you'd say, I'm going to spend a quarter and just ask big questions with CMOs. Uh, it's, it makes <laughs> me laugh just to think about it. That being said, in this building, there was a coffee machine. And the coffee machine had the ability to print something on the top of it. And these exist. They're made by a company called Ripple. And it's, 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 they're great. But I, I said when I was in that building, every time I walk in the building, only a person, only a person would come up with the idea of printing on the top of a latte. No, <laughs> no machine is going to come up with this product. <laughs> that's, I think that's true. Yeah. And it's because it's ridiculous. I'll tell you, machines going to get better at printing. It's going to make the line straighter. The graphics going to be more crisp. But the silliness, the vanity, and I, and I, I say that about myself, the vanity of having your own name on a coffee. Yeah. It's a very human question. It's a very human situation. So that being said, I think, how can we all bake a bigger pie? That's going to be a person's job. 
that empathy is going to be increasingly more important. You know, I'm having a conversation tomorrow with someone from a software platform in the affiliate space. And on our pre-call, we talked about the networks doing the things and the software doing things so that essentially what you said, let the humans do the human things Mm -hmm. and let the, the computers do the division. In the affiliate space specifically, we've heard year over year, the the industry's dead, affiliate marketing's dead. This is coming out and killing it. Uh, and it's all going to go away. Do you see the rise of machine learning? Uh, uh, do you see that taking over the affiliate space? Or do you think it, like you said, making a bigger pie? Um, how do you think with your experience in, in both of these worlds, yeah. how do you think that takes this particular industry? So the affiliate space is one of these wonderful things in that it is a true ask the new questions kind of field because very entrepreneurial individuals can get connected with very significant brands. And it's a very quantitative, we did this, you compensated us for this. It's not based on assumptions. It's mm-hmm. quite often based on metrics and KPIs. So I would say the model of performance advertising is not going anywhere. What I would say is that data-driven attribution is is, uh, something that is going to be increasingly interesting. And I would say that affiliate marketers could lean into data-driven attribution. So when I say data-driven attribution is... What are you doing to bring somebody through the conversion funnel? And with data-driven attribution, imagine there's a conversion funnel where uh, somebody was to buy something and you were there. And then it's very similar flow where you weren't there. Do you create a higher conversion rate? Do you drive incrementality? If that's true, math is on your side and there's no way to kind of argue against numbers. When you have automated bidding or automated ad creatives, if you have data-driven attribution on your side, the world is your oyster. I think uh, Google as a company is going to lean more into data-driven attribution and understanding the impact individual moments have for helping conversion. So think about it. If you are educating somebody on a space, you're educating somebody on the brands that are available, how they can make sure that they have the best uh, deal, understanding how they should understand what they should be doing moving forward, increasing the lifetime value of a customer, retaining or saving a sale from potential loss or or maybe a a thing, cross-selling, upselling. If you are part of that conversation, regardless, agnostic of what kind of label you put on yourself, that is a value proposition Mm -hmm. that I think is very exciting and hopefully... You know, we can see a bespoke future where we see ads that are tailored, more appropriate, they're ML forward, and, and the message is for what I need, when I need it. That's that's a convenient and exciting version of the future. And the people who help power that, I think will be rewarded. That is awesome and good to hear from the perspective of affiliate marketer. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so many great things in there. Uh, Don, we have time for one more. Um, 
and and I'll let you choose which one you want to talk about. Okay. One-to-one marketing at its best yep. or action items for marketers today? Uh, a lot of good things. So what I would say is that if, if you want to talk about action items, it's probably it's probably the, the place where we can um, really kind of actionable takeaways. So that'd be great. Yeah, let's, let's do that. So let's, let's recap what the three universal truths were. I think that's really important. One, respecting user privacy. That mm-hmm. we can't mess around with that. It's a legal and an ethical importance. Since when I was working at CMGI, we had a thing called, uh, you know, it was engage audience that, and it was anonymous then. And I, you know, that's how I just October 12th, 1999, when we launched that product, it was anonymous then, and I think it should. And I keep a, a mug on my desk that has that date, and it says that because privacy, connecting to the audience on their terms is so important. So I would say wow. get your privacy policy in line and understand that you are in compliance with all of the laws and the spirit of the policies of the companies you're dealing with. That is full stop number one. I would say number two. Uh, you know, we mentioned growth and connectivity is if your website isn't only developed on a phone, only looked at at a phone, isn't only beta tested on a phone, if it's not only on a phone, if all the screenshots when you guys are talking about a landing page aren't on a phone, now, 10 years ago is the moment to do it. But the, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. The, today, yeah. only phone. No screenshots of desktop should ever be shared internally or externally. And then I'd say three is I would probably lean into uh, something to do with automation. You know, we talked about automated bidding, automated creatives, data-driven attribution. What I would say is there's an opportunity for you, whether it's to understand how to bring those into the fold for your capabilities. You know, when you're talking about how do I uh, A-B test the right landing page? How do I write copy for this? Lean into the automated things. There's There are social and search and display and native options for automation. Figure them out because the people who do are going to win in the long run. Even if there's some ramp period on them, figure out what those are and, and lean into them. Don, that is fantastic. I, I love I love how you tie those into the three universal truths: um, privacy, uh, phone uh, compliance, and then and then automation. Uh, Don, I thank you so much. I have I'm not counting six pages and seven pages of notes uh, from this call. Several things I, I I don't know a whole lot about that I want to dive into. Uh, and and I, I may ask you to come on board uh, a, a second time um, if uh, and, and this has been fantastic, really some great stuff here. Uh, if anyone wants to ask you specifically, you know, more about any of the things we talked about or anything else, what's the best way for them to follow you uh, and to get in touch with you? Yeah. So there's two things that I, I, I check regularly. One would be LinkedIn, um, my LinkedIn profile, Don Batsford Jr., I have a very open door policy with my LinkedIn. So please shoot me a connection. I like to always uh, reply back when people send notes that aren't just general kind of blanket notes when they're to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing would be that I uh, I do have a Twitter account. 
I'm not actively as much a Twitter person, but it's just at BatsFord, my last name. Uh, again, <laughs> one of the benefits of being in the space a little bit longer is you can just get the Twitter name that is your last name. Oh, yeah. Name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that, that's uh, that's a, probably a good choice, B. Awesome. Well, Don, I, I can't thank you enough. Lots of great stuff here for uh, for myself and, and my listeners. I'll include uh, those means of contact in uh, our show notes. And I, I just want to thank you again. Lots of great things here. Love the universal truths. Um, I love the seven or eight pages of notes that I, <laughs> that I have. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us and, uh, yeah, stay safe out there. Uh, and I hope that you, your 2021, uh, brings you even more, uh, you know, fruit productivity and, and amazing, awesome stuff. Wonderful. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate it. Don, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, I know everyone's busy, especially you right now. I really appreciate the time. So for our listeners, some of the really big things I want you to pull from this, from a leadership situation is, uh, and from these two uh, studies that uh, Google put together, Oxygen and Aristotle, is to create a psychological safe environment for your team. So when we dove into that a little more, uh, Don talked about the structure, the clarity, having a a dependable team, allowing for mistakes to happen and allow for all questions, silly or not, to be asked. And the one thing that really hit me, and and you heard it in this, is a guilt-free post-mortem. So we do what we call our retrospective. So whether a client leaves JEB Commerce or uh, a campaign didn't work or a mistake was made, we do these retrospectives. And that idea of a guilt-free post-mortem process or retrospective process, uh, how important that is to psychological safety for your team and, and, and that concept of any team can be successful when they feel psychologically safe. That was a really big point, Don. Thank you for sharing that. Really want you to look at these universal truths. Uh, there will be no shift away from respecting individuals' user, uh, individual users' privacy. Uh, and that is really important. There's so much going on right now. That's not going to change. As we enter 2021, that's going to be even more important. Connectivity growth, uh, which this was actually, I think, the third or fourth time uh, Don and I had this podcast scheduled. Uh, and because of my connectivity, uh, now that I'm working from home, we had to uh, we had to reschedule these. But that broadband access uh, is a base minimum. And then the increased capability uh, of computing process. So, so many good things here, really a a tremendous uh, uh, hour for me. I hope you got a lot out of it too. The action items going forward are really good too. You make sure your privacy policy is in place and on point. Make sure your website is compliant with your phone. And then automation, look for automation in your bidding, in your auctions, in the data-driven attribution, in your creative and all other areas. Let the computers do the computer and the division and let the humans do the human things. So again, thank you so much, Don, for your time. I hope everyone here got a lot out of it. If you need anything, please let us know. There's two ways you can get time on my calendar uh, to help you with all things digital, uh, especially affiliate marketing. You can email me at gethelp at jebcommerce.com. You can also set up time with me 
at uh, camlinley.com slash Jamie Birch. And either of those, I will help you with whatever you need. Uh, you can also go to jebcommerce.com slash acquisition cost to get your case study that highlights how we and you can increase your revenue while reducing your customer acquisition costs. Just go to jbcommerce.com slash acquisition costs. So I hope you are safe out there. Uh, stay masked up and stay uh, six feet away uh, and make sure you are washing your hands. Let's all do this together and stay safe and get through this together. So thank you so much. Thank you, Don. And if you do find this uh, helpful, please share this uh, with a friend, share it on social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and LinkedIn, and leave us a five-star review. 